Our scripture is taken from Romans, second chapter, verses 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the lie on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law of embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one <clears throat> must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In these early chapters of Romans, we get into the way that Paul uses the term law. And as one commentator stated about this, most of us don't have Paul's intellectual flexibility, if you want to think about it, to just use the word, the same word, often in the same sentence in very close context, and mean by it, some different things, just depending on how he's looking at it. So we have to read slowly, we have to read carefully, we have to read with consideration of what is he talking about when he uses the word law in this context, speaking to these people about these things. And last Lord's Day, we were considering the law of God written on the hearts of men, as Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 say, for when Gentiles those who are uncircumcised, those who are strangers to the covenants of promise in Israel, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. Right there you have two things, what the law requires and a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, which is to say even though they don't have the law in written form, even though the Gentiles did not receive that revelation from the top of Sinai that brought God's perfect and holy law to his people, Israel. Now we'll be talking about this more later, but one of the things we need to do as we proceed through the book of Romans is to lay aside some of the prejudice that we have towards the law. I know a pastor who was talking about the law not too long ago was saying, just the word gives me a rash. 
And I understand what he was saying because he grew up in a home that had a very, very legalistic approach. But he had let that push him too far to the other side where he was starting to say, well, if we just do things because we know that God wants us to do them, then actually in doing them, we might be sinning, which is a really strange approach to take. We need to understand that there are times when we will keep the law because it's written in our hearts, especially as believers in Jesus Christ. There are times we will do what is right because we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and we just want to please him. There are going to be other times, maybe when our love has grown a little bit cold and that's something we need to deal with in prayer and in scripture and in confession of sin and whatever it is that it takes, when we still need to do the right thing just because it's the right thing, because it's what's God, what God has commanded. I think probably all of us who are married can attest to the fact that there are times when it has not been at all a problem to love our spouse. You know, it's, it's rainbows and roses and, you know, all of those things. There are those other times, though, when it's not so easy, if you don't believe this, talk to Linda, she can fill you in. There's times when it's not so easy to love the person that you are committed to until death do you part. But having said that, you're committed till death do you part. So be faithful. Love in deed and in truth. Even if you're not feeling that in your heart, the same thing is true of obedience to the law of God. On a really good day, we obey the law of God without even thinking about it because we want to please God. But there are those other days when we maybe don't feel quite so loving and we're called to love him anyway because this is love for God, that we obey his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Anyway, the Gentiles often have to live out of that sort of space because they didn't get the law carved in stone down from the mountain at Sinai. Instead, it was written in their hearts. And they show, according to Romans 2.15, that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And this is part of what it means that in the beginning, God created man good and after his own image. In true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. We talk about the image of God and people. We need to come back to our reformed roots and understand this is what it is. This is how the Heidelberg Catechism distilled scripture to speak of the image of God. This is very parallel to what Westminster and the other reformed confessions say. We were not created in the image of God in that we have a body, hands and feet and a face and all those things. We were not created in the image of God, strictly speaking, in a number of other ways. We were created in the image of God good, in true righteousness and holiness. And God created us this way so that we might rightly know him. We might heartily love him and remember this is love for God. What? That we do his commands and his commands are not burdensome. So when it says that we might heartily love him, you can just read behind that text the word obey him. 
and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Now, the fall into sin corrupted this capacity. In the fall into sin, the image of God in humankind was broken. We no longer have the capacity for true righteousness and holiness. We are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But having said that, there's a remnant of that image of God in all people. We need to keep that in mind. And it should also be said that when it comes to the moral law of God, that is still there in the hearts of all people. I mentioned in the sermon last Sunday that the commandment, thou shalt not kill, had not been carved in stone yet when Cain rose up against his brother Abel and murdered him. But Cain knew it was wrong. And we know that he knew that it was wrong in the same way that we so often can see that people know something is wrong. He tried to hide it. After Cain killed Abel, when God approached him, Cain didn't say, hey, Lord, look, look what I did. Isn't that neat? <laughs> Think of it as a sacrifice. You didn't like the fruit and vegetables I brought a little before, so I'll give you my brother. Cain knew it was wrong. He hid his brother's body in the ground. And the voice of his blood cried out to God. And so often in our lives as human beings, we are engaging with things. Watch, watch little children who, you know, there's no commandment carved in stone. Thou shalt not eat a cookie 15 minutes before supper. But I remember when I was a kid, we, we had this lovely red wing pottery cookie jar. It's probably worth a fortune. I think I still have it in my garage somewhere now. But I hated it. I hated it beyond all reason because no matter how hard you tried, it was impossible to lift the lid on that jar, take a cookie, and put the lid back down without making noise. And my mother had a special filter in her head. She could be out in the backyard 100 feet from the house picking strawberries, and she would hear that cookie jar. But why did I even think to try to hide because I knew it was wrong. And so very often, even in society, even among unbelievers, even where there is this, this push away from a sense of how God has spoken to us to tell us who he is and how he would have us to live, we see people who are doing things in the dark. They're hiding them because they know in their heart that it's wrong. Because even though the image of God has been fractured, that law written in their heart is still there. And it should also be said that when it comes to the moral law of God, God has one law and one only. The law that he wrote on the hearts of people from the creation of the world is the same law that he wrote on tablets of stone. God doesn't have one standard for those who have received some kind of divine revelation and then a lesser standard for those who maybe aren't believers or they've not received that word. It's not, um, thou shalt not commit adultery for the people who are in the church or in Israel and, you know, as long as you don't do it overtly. God has one law written on tablets of stone and written on human hearts. And God promised 
in the old covenant that when the new covenant came, he would restore that law written in the hearts of his people so that we would have not only the written word, but we would have the laws inscribed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and we would have that standard of God's righteousness to direct us in all of our living. There's only one law. There's one law for the Christian and the same law for the noble savage, the one who has never heard. Even so, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And that's a definitive statement. We haven't got there yet, although I've referred to it numerous times. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. And all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law or in the law will be judged by the law. So with or without the written law, apart from the mercy and grace of God, as all have sinned, all would perish on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the case that Paul has built against mankind in these early chapters of his letter to Romans. We're not done yet. But in verse 17, he turned his focus more particularly to those who not only had the law of God written in their hearts, they did, but also had received the law of God by divine revelation. They are Israelites, as Paul would designate them in Romans chapter 9. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They had received all of these things. In addition to God's revelation of himself in creation and in the law that was written in the hearts of mankind from the beginning, they had received all of that. The glory, the adoption, the covenants, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs. And to whom much is given, from him much will be required. So, verse 17 to 24, if you call yourself a Jew. And I want us to notice especially the construction of that sentence in the way that Paul wrote it. If you call yourself a Jew. Paul wrote, if you call yourself a Jew, not if you are one. Because whether or not you are, regardless of what you call yourself, remains to be seen, according to Paul, in this text and several others in Romans. In the end, it's not merely a matter of self-identification. Paul's going to establish that it's possible for someone to call themselves a Jew and to have some very good reasons for doing that and not actually be one. And by extension, we can take that over into the Christian church and say, if you call yourself a Christian, well, then there are some things. Because simply calling ourselves Christians doesn't mean it's true. In the same way that in Paul's day, calling yourself a Jew didn't necessarily mean that it was true. Because in the end, it's not merely a matter of self-identification. So if you call yourself a Jew, and in our context, we could just as easily say and should, if you call yourself a Christian. Now take all of the Old Testament sort of words that Paul's going to use when he's talking about if you call yourself a Jew, and fill them in, and rely on the law. Well, rely on the New Testament. 
and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Remember, he's firing this out across the board to the people who call themselves Jews, and we can hear it as Christians as well. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? That's such an interesting reference, because apparently there were people in first century Rome who were Jews who abhorred the idolatry of the, the mythos and the emperor cult and such things, and who then found that it was totally acceptable to go, and you know, you've heard this before, how in those temples meat that was sacrificed to the demon gods of the Gentiles was then sold so that people could eat it and sort of receive some of that leftover grace that was coming from that idol. Well, apparently they didn't feel bad about stealing them because when you steal from a pagan, well, you know, you can't really be found guilty of that. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now there is much that we could go into there in terms of why Old Covenant Israel was entrusted with the words of the law. He didn't just give it to, to them, he entrusted it to them. And it was entrusted to them. They were given the law. They were made God's covenant people. Not so they could be at ease in Zion. And then as God's covenant people go about the business of just living like all the nations around them did. But knowing that in the end we are going to be received by God and they're not. That was actually the moral failure of Israel throughout their generations. Remember them talking to Jesus in the Gospels? And they're saying, we're children of Abraham. We have nothing to fear. We're the covenant people. What are you talking about? You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We've never been slaves to anyone. That was their attitude. And Jesus was making much the same point there that Paul is making here. That they were given the law so that they could take all of these blessings that they had received and then as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to proclaim to the nations around the glory of the grace of God, to be a light to the Gentiles. In the New Testament, when God says, I will make you a kingdom, a nation of priests, Sometimes we talk about the priesthood of all believers and the implications of that within the local congregation. The big implication of that that we mostly miss is that when God talks about the priesthood of all believers, what he's talking about is our task to go into the community, to go into the world as priests proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and calling people to repentance and faith. See, we have the same task. Israel was given that task under the old covenant. Christians, likewise, have been entrusted with the oracles of God. 
we call it the gospel, the holy scriptures. And we've not been given these things merely to possess them. Isn't it nice? When I am troubled, I have the Bible, and I can turn to it, and I can find comfort and solace there. We have not been given these things exclusively for that. It is nice, and that's part of it. But we have been given these things not so that we can rest at ease in our salvation while we go about the business of living like the rest of the world all around us. We've been entrusted with the gospel as the church of Jesus Christ so that we can proclaim it, so that we can proclaim it in word and in deed, so that we can tell our family and our friends and our neighbors, anyone who doesn't yet know Christ as Savior, that there is life and light and salvation and hope to be found in Jesus Christ. We've been entrusted with the gospel so that we can make disciples of the nations. Not so that we can make peace with them. Not so that we can compromise with the world. But so that we can proclaim to the nations that Jesus Christ is Lord. And call them to come and to follow him in faith. And to find life there. We've been entrusted with that task of discipling the nations. By the way, I've said this before, I'll probably say it again, that construction in Greek and the Great Commission is not saying, go into all the world and find individuals from every nation and make disciples of them. That is not what Christ commanded. What Christ commanded there is for the church to disciple the nations, for the church to speak the gospel to the ethnos, to the Gentiles, to the people of the world collectively. And of course, that involves individuals coming to know Christ as Savior. But it also involves us speaking to the nations and saying, you know what? Justin Trudeau, you are the Prime Minister of Canada, and we owe respect because of that. We owe you our prayers because God has commanded us to pray for kings and for all those who are in authority indiscriminately. That passage was written under some of the worst of the Caesars. That is true. But it's also our job to say, Justin Trudeau, you have a boss. And it's not the parliament and it's not the people of Canada. It's Jesus Christ who is, and I quote, King of kings and Lord of of lords. He rules over the governments and the rulers of those governments in this world. It's not that just Jesus is sitting in heaven ruling in spiritual things to the church. That's not what he said. He said all authority in heaven, yes, amen, and in earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ is the ruler of the nations. And as a kingdom of priests to our Savior, Jesus Christ, it's our job to proclaim this word to the nations. We've been entrusted with this gospel so that we can follow and keep the commands of Christ. Still so many Christians today, like the people of Old Covenant Israel, remain content to just identify and be identified as the people of God. To not make waves, to not offend anyone, even though the gospel is by very definition an offense. 
to remain simply in the thought that we've been saved and that in the end we will go to heaven when we die without actually living as those who have been saved. Because we weren't just saved to go to heaven. We were saved to live as the people of God in this world and to bring glory and honor and praise to Jesus Christ the Lord. We're not meant to just rest in the thought that we are Christians. We are meant to live as those who have heard the call of Christ to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. We want to rely on the law, to rely on the gospel, we would say, to boast in God, to approve what is excellent, having been instructed from the word. And all the while, just live the same way as those who dishonor God by breaking or in more often than not, just ignoring the word of God. Jesus gave a good illustration of this in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 30. He's speaking to the chief priests and elders of the people in that day, those who were regarded as the most spiritually enlightened and educated people in all of Israel, people who knew God's law the chief priest of Israel and anybody about five tiers down from him had the entire Old Testament memorized in Hebrew, word for word. You couldn't get to that point without having that kind of knowledge. Paul had it too. But Jesus is talking to these people who are so well-educated, so godly, so spiritual. And he asks, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son, he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. A more literal translation of the Greek in that phrase says, Afterward, he repented himself and went. In other words, at first, he did not truly identify as a son in his father's house in the best sense of that. I'm sure he loved to receive the blessings that came from being a son in his father's house, but he was not willing to do the will of his father. But then he repented. He had a change of heart. And when he repented, when his heart changed, he, to use the words that John the Baptist once used, bore fruit in keeping with such repentance. That's one son. On the other hand, the father went to the other son and said the same. He said, go and work in a vineyard today. It's pretty straightforward. And this son answered, I go, sir. Note the respectful attitude. I go, not just I go, but I go, sir. This boy knows what it means to be a son. And he's not going to just pop off. No way, Dad, I'm not doing that. You're a terrible person. I've got better things to do with my time. He doesn't do that. He responds respectfully to his father. I go, sir. Thank you for giving me the privilege of serving you by going into the vineyard and working. The thing is, the son who said, I will not, did. And the son who said, I go, sir, 
did not. Prompting from Jesus the question, which of the two did the will of his father? And this is an important question. There was a time when Jesus was ministering to people and the crowd was so thick nobody could even move. And some folks came to the door, knocked on the door and said, hey Jesus, your mother and your sister and brothers are standing outside. They want to talk to you. They actually wanted to take him into custody because they thought he was probably insane. That's another story. But Jesus turned to those who said, your mother and your sister and your brothers are here waiting outside. And he said, who are my mother, sister, sisters, and brothers? And then he said, those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Those who understand that with sonship comes not only privilege, but with sonship comes responsibility. The privilege of actually serving the Father. And of course, the chief priests and the elders, being very intelligent, they just aced that pop quiz like they did so many others that Jesus threw their way. Which of the two did the will of his Father? And they did not say, you know, the one who showed proper respect, the one who said, I go, sir. The one who actually showed some, you know, worship to his father in his words, they got it right. They answered the first. The odd thing is they still didn't understand. Because in Paul's lingo, they were those who would call themselves Jews. They were those who relied on the law, who boasted in God, who knew his will. Those who were called to be a light to those in darkness and instructors to the foolish. And he said, the first one, the one who said he wouldn't do it, but then he went and did it. He's the one who did the will of his father. But then Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now don't miss the point of the parable. Please do not miss the point of the parable. The first brother said no, and then he went and did the will of his father. In other words, he said no when his dad first asked him, but then he repented. He had a change of heart. He had a change of mind, and he worked out his repentance by actually doing the will of his father. He lived it. The second brother had a respectful tongue. No doubt he showed up at appropriate times to enjoy the wine from his father's vineyard and to offer a toast to the founder of the feast. My dad, this is good stuff, dad, drink up. But his heart wasn't in it. He self-identified as a son, but he did not live as one because a son knows that we are called to do the will of the father. So as to these tax collectors and prostitutes who were entering the kingdom of God ahead of the Pharisees and their kind, they were not entering as tax collectors and prostitutes. They were sinners who were hearing the word of grace proclaimed by the divine son of God, who were repenting, who were turning away from their sin and turning toward God and doing the will of the Father. The point of the story is that in their sin they had been saying no to the Father, but when they repent, when they regret their rebellion, they respond to the cross, call of Christ to follow. The point here is that anyone can say anything. A Pharisee can say, I am a Jew. So can a sinner. 
a graceless legalist can say, I am a Christian. And so can an unrepentant reprobate. But simply saying it does not make it so. Self-identification is not the same as identity. And a profession of faith is not the same thing as true faith. Hence Paul's assertion in verses 24 and 25. And watch for the two brothers in this as I read it. For circumcision, the very first thing that identified a Jew as a Jew, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, if you don't live it, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. The brother who said, yes, sir, I will go, and then didn't. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? I don't want to go deeply into that at this point, but Paul repeated it in verses 28 and 29 with an important addition. He said, For no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. We could read that text and say, No one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, and neither is true baptism outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. So ultimately, Paul is setting all of these assertions against those who believe that true religion is about the externals, that it's about the rituals, that it's about the heritage, that it's about the traditions that we have observed from the time of our fathers. All those things that served to make people stand back and say, of the high priest and his kind. That guy right there, he's a true Jew. He's the genuine article. The Romans is saying that is not and never was the real definition. True religion, Judaism under the old covenant and as we will see throughout this book, Christianity under the new, is not merely, and we need to highlight that word too, it is not merely outward and physical. It is that, but not merely that. It is a matter of the heart. And it's not even a matter of our heart on its own, following my heart, being true to myself. When you wish upon a star. But it's a matter of the heart by the Spirit of God Almighty. And we have one more excursus in Romans 3 on the radical sinfulness of sin in unregenerate hearts. And we need to look at that next Sunday, Lord willing. But Paul will spend the rest of the next six chapters fleshing out the implications of all of this. So we have time. We have time to come to a better understanding of it. But for this morning, I just want to leave you with this. I want you to think of those two brothers, sons of one father, who were called to live as sons not by merely enjoying all the blessings that they looked forward to in the inheritance that they would one day receive, that was part of it, but also by walking in obedience to the voice of the Father. And so the Father called these two young men to go and work in his vineyard, a vineyard which we might add in the story would ultimately belong to them. One said no, and then he repented, the other said yes, and Jesus doesn't elaborate on his reasons, but for one reason or another, he didn't go, whether or not he even intended to. 
And in the end, their faithfulness was not to be proven by their words, but by the obedience of faith. We too have heard the call of God. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, would follow me, would be a Christian, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Some will say, yes, Lord, of course. Just like that one son did. And then they'll turn back, their religion being merely outward and physical. We'll see more about that in weeks to come. But some, maybe even some who have been saying no for a very long time, maybe even some who originally said yes and then turned back and said no, maybe some of us are among them, may yet hear the call of Christ. And by the grace of God and the work of his Holy Spirit, repent and turn and take up our cross and follow. So which son are you? When you look into that mirror, where do you see yourself? It's not just a matter of externals. It's a matter of the heart by the spirit. So may God give us not only ears to hear, may he renew our hearts to believe to say yes to his call, to take up our cross and to follow as he leads. And as we believe, so may we speak, calling all people to repent and to find that there is life and light and salvation and hope to be found by grace alone, in Christ alone, and by faith alone. To him be the glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, if you had left us on our own, we would have perished in our sin. Help us to never forget that. Help us never to forget that the people who we were were dead in trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who even now is at work in the sons of disobedience. Help us to never forget that so that we can never forget, but always remember what Jesus Christ has done for us, giving himself for us and for our salvation. That, Father, as we turn to you through faith in him, we receive not only the promise of eternal life in a world to come, but we receive abundant life here and now in this world as your spirit works within us all that is pleasing to you and does so through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen.